Hello and welcome to Integrity File, a podcast brought to you by the Center for the Advancement of Public Integrity. On this episode, part one of a conversation on corruption and the 2016 election with Harvard Law Professor Matthew Stevenson. Welcome. Thanks for coming. I'm Jennifer Rogers. I run the Center for the Advancement of Public Integrity here at the law school. Here we are in the Trump presidency, which has so far already, even in the first couple of weeks, been a presidency of many firsts, just like the campaign had many firsts. And unfortunately, one of those firsts is we've never before had a presidency which, with so many ethics and corruption concerns raised this early on, or even ever. So there is a lot to talk about, everything from how he got elected in the first place, how corruption concerns played into that, to what we're going to see as far as anti-corruption enforcement efforts. So I'm going to turn it over to our two distinguished guests to explore it in more detail. We have to my left is Jeremy Fagelson from Debevoice. Uh, Jeremy's a partner there, and he also is a CAPI advisory board member and headed up the City Bar's Government Ethics Committee, so he's got a long history with these uh, anti-corruption and ethics issues. And to my right is Professor Matthew Stevenson from Harvard. Matthew teaches corruption-related topics and also edits and writes for his blog, the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. So here we go. So let's start, if we could, Matthew, with just a little bit of history. Let's go back to the days of your meeting, October of 2016. Mm-hmm. And in the closing days of the campaign, uh, one candidate is talking about draining the swamp. What was he saying? What did he mean? What impact did that have? And how does that set the stage for where we are now? So it's a great question. A lot of a question a lot of people, both generally and specifically those who think a lot about corruption and anti-corruption, have asked about. The short answer is I don't know which is always a safe answer to give in, in these contexts. But I do think it might be helpful to maybe frame thinking about that issue by laying out three competing hypotheses for what role corruption and Trump's anti-corruption drain-the-swamp rhetoric played in his victory. Hypothesis number one goes something like this. The failure of mainstream politicians, especially the mainstream Democratic Party or political progressives generally to confront and address the problems of systemic corruption in the U.S. political system created the space for someone like Donald Trump to adopt that very strong drain-the-swamp anti-corruption rhetoric. And uh, the failure to address things, this is corruption broadly defined, campaign finance, lobbying reform, the influence of money in politics, and so on and so forth. The failure to really grapple with that issue that a lot of Americans cared about created an opening for a populist like Donald Trump to seize that issue. That's an argument that I've heard a number of people make. I associate it with people like Sarah Chase, for example, who's advanced that argument very clearly and forcefully. Other scholars like Bob Klitgaard have gone in that direction as well. So uh, my colleague Larry Lessig has suggested something to, to similar effect. That's hypothesis number one. Hypothesis number two is almost the exact opposite. So hypothesis number two is that the tendency of many people, especially those in the political left, to use almost hyperbolic rhetoric of corruption to describe very real, very genuine problems in the U.S. political system created a space for someone like Trump who offered to burn it all down. Right? So according to this hypothesis, it wasn't that Democrat, mainstream Democrats and the people in the political left were talking too little about systematic corruption in the U.S. political system. It's in some sense they were talking about it too much, or what I mean by that is using that rhetoric of the whole system is broken, everything's rigged, the powerful pull all the strings, you have no power, 
And like, to the extent that that kind of sunk in and people believed it, it was hard then to sell a candidate who was basically a Washington insider kind of candidate who could argue, I'm going to work within the system to pursue a whole bunch of incremental reforms for things that you might care about, like health care and financial reform and this, that, and the other thing. Right? So in that sense, it was, it was sort of the opposite of the Chase-Lessig uh, hypothesis. Third hypothesis, and it's the one I actually think I gravitate to maybe most, which is that it, it actually didn't make that much of a difference because the anti-corruption rhetoric that Trump was using wasn't really about corruption as we understand it, as Cappy understands it in defining the scope of its mission, uh, and so forth. That was kind of a, that rhetoric was sort of a, a placeholder for a more generalized anger directed towards people like me, right? Coastal Ivy League elites being snooty and looking down on other people and the sense of being under threat and the sense of the nation being sold out to foreigners, both still foreign and, and internal, and that we're actually making a mistake if we think that when Donald Trump was talking about draining the swamp and fighting corruption, he was actually talking about this cluster of issues. And what we need to understand what's going on there is that term corruption often functions as a kind of placeholder for a generalized anger at the establishment. But it doesn't necessarily mean not only just bribery and embezzlement, it doesn't necessarily mean campaign finance and money and politics, again, the way people like Larry Lessig or Sarah Chase understand it. You know, my political scientist friends are still working on this and running the numbers, and I, I'm very, this is why I say I don't know. But I tend to gravitate towards the third hypothesis, I think. And maybe I put a little bit more stock in the second than most people who travel in the same circles than, that I do tend to. I, I, I don't think it was really the first. Okay. So if it's the third, uh, where does that start to point, given that President Trump, for better or worse, uh, does actually have a government to run and agencies to administer? Uh, what's the sort of macro-level direction to them if, if hypothesis three is controlling. So if hypothesis three is, I mean, there could be a mix of all three things. I should make clear. In some sense, they're, mutual, they're competing, but in another sense, some might apply to some people and some might apply to other people. To the extent that hypothesis three is the correct one, it means we shouldn't be holding our breath for Trump's supporters to turn on him when it looks like there's a whole lot of ethically questionable conduct in the administration. A lot of people say, well, look, he ran on drain the swamp, and once they see that the swamp isn't being drained, Right, that you put in an earlier conversation, the cabinet's filling up with swamp creatures, then the then the then these people are gonna turn on him and be really upset. That things like another issue that we've discussed beforehand, the attacks on the Office of Government Ethics are gonna have great political resonance with the voters, the very small number of voters principally concentrated in the Midwest and Florida who put them over the top. If you think hypothesis three is correct, and again, I'm not sure it is, it means, again, we shouldn't hold our breath waiting for that to happen because what those people were angry about was not really Trump's conflict of interest regarding his business dealings abroad. It wasn't really uh, about you know too much influence of the uber-wealthy in politics. It was about something else. And that if those of us in the anti-corruption community want to advocate for moving forward on these issues, or at least not moving backward, we shouldn't put too much hope in mobilizing those voters as a base of support. I, again, I, I could be, and to a considerable degree, I hope that I am wrong about that, but in the conversations among anti-corruption people, in the few weeks after the election, I heard a lot of chatter about, look, Trump may be horrible in all these other ways, but at least he's kind of good on anti-corruption. We can leverage that. We can move forward. And I confess, I'm skeptical. <laughs> Before we, we move uh, off of the 
the prehistory of October 16 and, and more into the present, uh, I'll just ask you to comment on how the Democrats handled these issues in the campaign and might history be different if, if they had approached it differently? So, I mean, in some ways, this is a variant in the first question. My answer will be a variant as well. The easy and most honest answer I can give is, I don't know. I mean, everybody the day afterwards becomes an expert in campaign strategy and starts you know, stroking their chins. Well, obviously, what the Democrats have done is this, that, and the other thing, where if you look like two days before the election, they weren't saying that. So I'm a little bit skeptical. There's also a tendency in the election postmortem for people's diagnosis to be the Democrats should have done more of what I wanted them to do more of anyway. For the people who thought the Democrats should have been doing more to reach out to white working class voters, they were vindicated. For the people who thought the Democrats should have taken a more full-throated, progressive line, a harder line against Wall Street, uh, they were vindicated too. Everyone can claim vindication. So in terms of the anti-corruption issue specifically, I mean, it comes back to the three hypotheses that I laid out. If hypothesis number one is correct, if sort of the Chase, Lessig, Clickart hypothesis is correct, then the Democrats did not take seriously enough how angry a sufficient number of voters were about corruption, broadly defined in the political system. And it shouldn't just be that Hillary Clinton was saying things like, I'm going to appoint a Supreme Court justice who will overturn Citizens United, and you know, saying some things about the worries about powerful pulling the strings. They should have gone much more uh, aggressively uh, pounding that theme. Of course, it's very difficult, and this is one of the problems with being seeking the third democratic term, having been the Secretary of State, it's a little bit difficult for someone like Secretary Clinton to have run on a Washington is broken, the whole system is falling apart kind of line. If hypothesis number two is correct, then it, isn't, it wouldn't really imply that the Democrats should have done anything in particular differently. It would imply that progressive academics, activists, groups, and so forth should take a good hard look in the mirror at the way they framed their rhetoric about the problems, the genuine, I want to make sure I'm clear about this, the genuine and important problems in the U.S. political system. But, you know, you can look at, I recently had an interaction with someone from one of these advocacy groups who's a very, you know, sincere, well-meaning guy, but he was showing at this conference some videos that his group had put out before the election, and they really were, the system is all rigged, your vote doesn't count, uh, we need to get campaign finance reform and pass these ballot initiatives at the state level. And, you know, I, this, this, I found this troubling, right? I mean, to the extent that progressives for a long time have been saying, well, the big problem is money and politics and trying to rise above it and not really engage in the policy issues, right? And that's saying like the problem is kind of radical right-wingers in politics, but to sort of try to feel above it all and say, well, it's money and politics and everything is rigged, then that would suggest that we need to cons reconsider that strategy and find a way to package, again, this very important message about dealing with excessive influence of money in politics without sending the message to the whole world uh, or to potentially to voters, right, this key voting group, that everything is rigged and everything is falling apart and your, your vote doesn't matter because that creates openings for someone who says, yeah, well, if the whole system is totally rigged, then let's just burn it down, right? What have you got to lose? If hypothesis three is correct, then it actually suggests that this wasn't really an issue about how the Democrats chose to address corruption specifically. And then the issue becomes much broader. So then the question becomes, when people said they were really angry about corruption, they wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton because of concerns about corruption, or they voted for Donald Trump because they thought he would drain the swamp, what we would need to do is figure out what did they really mean? And again, here I'm going to leave this to my social science, political science colleagues who I think are still working on trying to figure this out. Uh, but there's a danger in taking those explanations at face value and assuming that if we just positioned ourselves a little bit better to talk about 
corruption, it would have made a difference. Um, okay, why don't we shift gears then and talk a little bit about how this president actually runs his administration. Okay. Uh, we've got an audience of lawyers and lawyers in training here. So where should we be looking as a practical matter? What are the agencies, what are the programs and the laws that, that matter here as we look to see how anti-corruption policies are actually being enforced? Yeah, great. So it's, uh, it's a question that's on a lot of people's minds, a question I I think about a lot, given this is the area I work in. Maybe a way to um, divide up the question, although the categories are not neatly separable in real life, is it becomes external anti-corruption enforcement. What do we expect the government will do, should do, uh, could be persuaded to do with respect to enforcing a variety of anti-corruption laws and associated laws on things like anti-money laundering, financial transparency, and so forth. Um, and then there's a separate set of questions, again, related but separate, about anti-corruption in the government itself. So concerning issues like the ethics rules, concerns have been raised about conflict of interest, concerns that have been raised about nepotism and so forth. Mm -hmm. So let me start with the first. And here again, I mean, nobody knows what's going to happen, but I can lay out uh, what some of the concerns are. So uh, with respect to one topic that I certainly follow closely and perhaps some people in this room have, have worked on as well, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, U.S. enforcement of this uh, very important law enacted in 1977, but really only enforced vigorously starting in the late 1990s, that prohibits uh, U.S. companies, any public company that lists on a U.S. exchange, right, which would include a very large number of uh, multinationals that are not U.S. firms, uh, or anyone, if, they're, if any part of the transaction takes place in the territorial jurisdiction of the United States, from paying a bribe to a foreign official for purposes of obtaining or retaining business. So... Um, that law, again, has been enforced quite aggressively starting in the late 90s across both Democratic and Republican administrations. Uh, there have been fairly aggressive attacks on it, launched from many quarters, including, for example, the Chamber of Commerce's advocacy division, a number of sympathetic academics, a number of members of the defense bar, uh, and others. So one concern is for those people who are believers in aggressive FCPA enforcement, uh, this is a cause of concern, and there are a couple of things you want, might be concerned about. One thing you might be concerned about are legislative modifications of the law. So again, the Chamber of Commerce and other advocacy groups have been pushing for what they describe as reforms to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, which I think pretty clearly in practice are meant to weaken the statute and make it more difficult for the Department of Justice and the SEC to enforce aggressively. The last time there was a major push on this was in 2010, 2010, 2011, but that was when you saw a lot of, again, it's about a decade after really aggressive FCPA enforcement had become a big thing. The, the reaction has its equal and opposite political reaction. You saw a movement afoot to push back on it. That didn't get anywhere for a few reasons. One uh, is there was a lot of pushback from the administration and a lot of people, you know, career lawyers in the Department of Justice and people who were in Republican administrations who were you know, pushing back against that. You also had the New York Times broke the Walmart story right around the same time that the Chamber of Commerce was launching this lobbying push. And it was not, for those of you who are not familiar with this, although I suspect a lot of people here might be, there were revelations about alleged bribe payments that Walmart's Mexican subsidiary had been paying systematically throughout Mexico. It triggered a, a big investigation. It was not an opportune political moment. Uh, to be pushing weakening of this law. So that kind of faded, but one thing you might be concerned about is not so much that Donald Trump would push for this, but that the Chamber of Commerce, given that both the House and the Senate are in Republican control, um, and the Republicans controlling it, seem very sympathetic to arguments from business about this, that, or the other thing is hurting business, could say, well, this is our opportunity to get through this package of reforms, and Trump probably doesn't care one way or the other, 
The only thing we really know, I mean, he has this one interview that a lot of people cite to where he described the FCPA as a horrible law. Um, I don't want to overreact to that, right, because Trump says a lot of stuff off the cuff, and it was in the particular context of talking about the Walmart issue. It's not clear he had any particularly strong opinion on it, but it's hard to imagine he would be a staunch defender uh, of the law. And even though, again, one of the reasons the law has been defended is across parties, there have been people who defend the law as really important. It's kind of a nonpartisan issue. It's about protecting the, the reputation of the United States, the integrity of U.S. companies. Uh, actually, again, it applies broadly to non-U.S. companies as well. But again, if uh, the Chamber of Commerce and those the FCPA reform crowd see their opportunity and Trump doesn't care, you can get a change to the law, which would be very, very difficult to undo, even if Trump is no longer president. The other concern is simply uh, ratcheting back on enforcement. That's, that's somewhat less of a concern in terms of its impact, but a greater concern in, in terms of its more likely. Hard to get legislation through under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. uh, so what do we know? So we know that Trump has said the FCPA is a, FCPA is a terrible law. We know that there's a perception, although it's not, it's not entirely accurate, that it disadvantages American businesses relative to foreign competitors. Again, it's not entirely accurate because the FCPA applies to any firm that lists on a U.S. exchange. And if you look at the 10 largest FCPA settlements ever, seven of them are against foreign companies, only three are against U.S. companies. But can, there's can, that perception. Can we just jump in there yeah. and unpack that a little bit for, yeah. for folks in the room who are still getting acquainted with FCPA? Yeah. So uh, I'm running a, a business in Country X, mm -hmm. and I take the attitude that, you know what, in Country X, you can't get anything done without uh, greasing the palms of yep. uh, the local, uh, you know, permit-granting agency. And I'm an American company, and, you know, look, look, Mom, all the other kids are doing it. And uh, so it's a job-killing law would be the argument. Is that about it? That's exactly the argument. I mean, what, what Mom might say is if all the other kids jumped off a bridge, would you do it? <laughs> and that's actually, that actually is kind of the attitude. So part of the, part of the thinking here, I don't, I don't want to get too much of the FCPA because our time is limited. We could have a whole session just in the FCPA. But that has been the classic argument against it, that it creates this unlevel playing field, that everyone else is playing, paying bribes, the Europeans are paying bribes, the Japanese are paying bribes, the Russians and the Chinese are paying bribes, U.S. companies can't pay bribes, and so they're losing out on business. Um, so there's not a lot of strong empirical evidence that that's true. The empirical evidence, it's, it's a hard issue to study statistically, and so the empirical evidence is mixed, but there's certainly not a smoking gun case that that's true. Um, it's also the case that, um, again, because the FCPA applies to any firm that lists on a U.S. exchange, it's actually not clear that the FCPA disadvantages U.S. firms vis-a-vis -vis other multinationals. Almost every multi major multinational lists on a U.S. exchange or has some other sufficient tie to the U.S. that they're going to be covered. Um, it, it doesn't help, right, if you're competing against a Chinese firm, right, in some place in sub-Saharan Africa, where even though China also has its equivalent FCPA law, the FCPA can't touch the Chinese firm. So, so that's true. A lot of U.S. businesses actually, notwithstanding the Chamber of Commerce's position, like the FCPA um, for a few reasons. One is it gives them a kind of face-saving reason to resist bribe requests. So again, not all companies say this, but some companies say we actually, we like having this here because when we go into country X and the local official makes it clear that a bribe is expected, we can say, look, I'd love to help you out. I know you're underpaid. I know it's kind of unfair, but those crazy guys back in Washington are going to throw me in jail or find my company tens of millions of dollars, and I just, I just can't do it. And a lot of times if the U.S. company actually provides a higher quality product or service, the, the local official will, will let him get away with it. I think there's some differentiation in the U.S. business community depending on whether the U.S. firms have really significant competitive advantages that give them, that, where that little extra bit of leverage the FCPA right. provides lets them resist. So um, 
That's, so that, that's basically the situation. But no, the, 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 say the everyone else is doing it excuse uh, doesn't work any better with the U.S. Department of Justice or SEC than it worked with your mother back when you tried to use it when you were six or seven years old. But, no, but, this, but there's a concern now that precisely this argument, even if it's not accurate, is going to get a lot more traction um, in an administration that's used that rhetoric of, you know, the foreigners are screwing this over okay. and so forth. So, so that is a, that's definitely a concern. So what do we know about preliminary appointments? So uh, the Department of Justice, the fraud section in particular, and the Securities and Exchange Commission share responsibility for enforcing the FCPA. President Trump's nominee to chair the FCPA, uh, Wall Street lawyer named Jay Clayton, uh, chaired a New York City bar committee that produced a report that was highly critical of the FCPA and emphasized this idea that it was disadvantaging American businesses. So for many people in the anti-corruption community, that was a source of concern. I don't want to overreact to that, though, for a few reasons. First, it was back in 2010, 2011. Um, second, I think he was very much right now in the culture of the time, at that time of the defense bar, and so who knows how much it reflects his thinking. In fact, he didn't write it. He chaired the commission and signed off on it. But, you know, I gather from other people who work in these areas, it's not always clear the chair of the commission is not, doesn't always have a direct, active hand in shaping these sorts of things. So, and, and then another, another example here would be that um, Andrew Weissman, who uh, was the head of the fraud section in the latter part of the Obama administration, when he uh, was uh, appointed, a lot of people, including me, were concerned because when he was in private practice, he actually co-wrote the Chamber of Commerce's main advocacy document called Restoring Balance, advocating for FCPA reform. And there may be some things around the edges that he did once he was in the administration that were a little bit more corporate friendly, maybe, but it didn't, mm-hmm. it, it didn't lead to a big policy reversal. So that's a little bit different, right? That's in the Department of Justice, and he's answerable to the head of the criminal division, and then, of course, to the Attorney General. SEC is more independent. So the Clayton's position on the, on the FCPA, or the Bar Commission's uh, paper, is a source of concern, but I don't want to get into hysterical overreaction. We really don't know yet. Um, on the Department of Justice side, Jeff Sessions is not really an issue. It's been a matter of focus for him. You know, he's made some noises, being skeptical about penalizing corporations if you don't go after the individuals, which is one of the big complaints of the FCPA reform crowd. But I don't think it's a high-profile issue, so a lot will depend on who ends up running the criminal division of the fraud section. I gather there's been very recently an appointment of the head of the fraud section, who's a lawyer I'm not familiar with, who has written quite a bit about the FCPA, haven't had a chance to go through it. A lot of it has the same feel, the kinds of things, the concerns that the corporate defense bar had been raising, but didn't really feel like scorched earth, this is a terrible law, we got to get rid of it. So not, not so sure right now. Okay. Where um, else besides FCPA should we be looking for guidance here? So um, then there's domestic anti-corruption enforcement, which we haven't talked a lot about. Uh, there's an issue there that actually might also be present with respect to the FCPA that right now is just a possibly paranoid forecasting concern, but I think is worth thinking about, and that's the concern about uh, partisan bias or other forms of bias in the enforcement of these laws. So lest you think that's really crazy and paranoid, there's actually been some good academic research, not a lot, but some good academic research on partisan bias in enforcement of domestic anti-corruption laws under previous administrations. And I want to be careful about how I present this. The evidence is not, like, it's all, everything is all a political witch hunt. But there is 
pretty, some pretty good evidence that at least at the margins you can get statistically significant evidence of modest but real effects where Republican administrations seem to bring uh, weaker cases against uh, Democrats and to some extent vice versa, all the first effect is much more pronounced. So there's actually just downtown from here an NYU political scientist named Sandy Gordon who did the first really good paper on this uh, where he basically used the statistical technique that's used to de detect discrimination in other contexts by trying to see what the expected probability of conviction and sentence are in anti-corruption prosecutions brought against co-partisans versus counterpartisans. Um, and the evidence, especially under the George W. Bush administration, and to some extent maybe under the Clinton administration, is that when you go after a co-partisan, the sentence that's handed down tends to be higher and the probability of conviction tends to be higher as well. That might immediately seem paradoxical, what's going on there. The idea is that at the margin, your willingness to bring the case, or your threshold for bringing the case may be lower if it's someone who seems mm -hmm. like they're a political adversary. That doesn't necessarily have to be conscious, right? All of us, and there's a lot of good psychological research on this, we have our stereotypes and prejudices in our head. Right? My, my uh, Yale professor Dan Kahan did this paper where, with some co-authors where he just showed a protest, a, vi a video clip of a protest, and asked people questions like, how aggressive were the protesters? Do you think they were being hostile? Do you think violence was being threatened? But he separated into two groups, and he told, I think, one group of people that it was like an anti-abortion protest, and he told another group of people something like an anti-nuclear protest or something. One, one coded left and one coded right. And they saw exactly the same clip, right? And, but the way they interpreted how violently or inappropriately the pro protesters behaved was affected by what, they, what the, the subjects thought they were, the people were in the clip were protesting about. So, so that's one piece of evidence. Another piece of evidence comes um, from uh, an economist at Vancouver, uh, Nimarit Rahavi, and a co-author, I believe, at Dartmouth and David Nyan, who they actually did, weren't able to get exactly the same uh, effect that uh, Sandy Gordon got, but what they did find is that partisan alignment seemed to affect the timing of anti-corruption prosecutions. So if there's going to be ele an election and a prosecution is brought, uh, what, are, what are the odds that it happens before the election, like just a month or two before the election or a month or two after the election? And there's this, they found this big discontinuity, right, where if the charge is against a co-partisan, it's much more likely to be brought right after the election than right before. Or if the charge is against someone who's of the opposite party, it's much more likely to be brought right before the election than right after the election. And the argument here is that prosecutors don't have total control about the timing of these things, but within the space of a few weeks or months, they've, they've got a little bit of wiggle room, and that's how it's used. The other thing that they found that was quite troubling uh, is that they could differentiate by prosecutor, by basically U.S. attorneys and assistant U.S. attorneys, about how, how big the effect was at the individual level. The ones for whom this effect was largest were the ones who were most likely to be subsequently appointed uh, as a judge to a court or otherwise promoted to a higher level position in uh, the government, which might be evidence that there's like deliberate you know, partisan bias going on. It might just be evidence that these are the people who are sort of gung-ho partisans to begin with and so suffer from those psychological biases more acutely but also tend to be the kinds of people who are plugged into the political circles and get promoted without any sort of deliberate nefarious conduct on their part. So that's a long digression, but I think it's important to get out there. This is already a concern in our political system. More anecdotally, as you, some of you might remember, uh, when George W. Bush quite controversially dismissed a whole bunch of U.S. attorneys, uh, which he probably had the constitutional power to do, but very much contravened uh, norms of usual practice, the alleged reason was that they, those 
U.S. attorneys were not aggressively pursuing corruption cases against Democrats and or were aggressively pursuing corruption cases against Republicans. So given all that as background and given the early signals we've seen from the Trump administration, that would be something I would be worried about and that I would watch for. Um, and again, I have this concern in the FCPA context as well, because one set of concerns that I just expressed a moment ago is we'll see a general decline in FCPA enforcement. An alternative hypothesis is we'll see much greater degree of bias in FCPA enforcement. Right? So um, one, it could be partisan bias, but it could be anti-foreign bias. So Europeans already complain a lot that U.S. enforcement of the FCPA is biased against them, and it's a form of de facto protectionism. And they point to statistics like the one I shared with you all a moment ago, that if you look at the top ten list of FCPA settlements, seven of the ten are against European companies or Japanese companies. Now, if you talk to Department of Justice people off the record, they'll never say this in the public forum, um, but what they'll say is the Europeans are just more corrupt, right? The reason, that, the reason, <laughs> not the European, the big European corporations, maybe they, you know, they, they haven't, U.S. corporations have kind of familiarized themselves with the FCPA for a longer period of time for a variety of other reasons, and so the difference in uh, that rate has to do with the base rate of how much of the bad conduct is going on. For that and a variety of other reasons, I've never been persuaded that there's really good evidence that U.S. enforcement of the FCPA is biased against non-U.S. companies. But that doesn't mean it couldn't happen in the future. Um, if it did happen, that would both be bad in and of itself and bad insofar as it would undermine the legitimacy and credibility of aggressive U.S. FCPA enforcement. So let's um, uh, shift gears a little bit away from the, the administration of uh, anti-corruption policies and statutes and agencies and talk about the, the let's call it the more personal side of this. Mm -hmm. We have a president who has enormous wealth and business interests who is taking an approach to uh, divestiture and blind trust and so forth that I will just say is different from yep. historical precedent. Uh, we've got a son-in-law in the White House. Yep. Um, talk a little bit about what are the rules of the road around all of that and what do you make of uh, uh, the president's efforts to, let's say, maybe uh, adjust the, the roadmap? So, um, again, it's a great question in a lot of people's minds. Like many people, especially people who could vaguely claim to be in the general area of anti-corruption or whatever, I've been scrambling to try to develop some <laughs> expertise. In the I mean, there are all these laws, regulations, and provisions of the Constitution that three weeks ago hardly anybody knew anything about, and now you have all these people, I guess now me included, holding forth as if they had great expertise on the details of the conflict of interest statutes and the foreign emoluments clause and the, you know, this, that, and the other thing. So with that very important caveat that I'm just myself getting up to speed on this, I mean, here's uh, what I know. So um, the, the most important conflict of interest statute for federal uh, officials explicitly does not apply to the president or vice president. Uh, there are actually good reasons for that. The way the statute is structured, the idea is that you're not supposed to have a conflict of interest, but if you do, you're supposed to recuse yourself and let somebody else make the decision. And the president has constitutional obligations such that it's not, there is no acting president, right? I mean, there's the vice president, but, the, but while the president still has the capacity to serve, uh, you know, you could, if a bill came to the president's desk for signature or veto, at that point the president can't recuse himself and have someone else sign or veto the bill. Uh, there's also a sense that the president's uh, jurisdiction is so broad that if you define conflict of interest you know, sufficiently broadly, it would be very difficult for the president to completely disentangle him or herself. So uh, the conflict of interest rules don't apply. Uh, as the head of the Office of Government Ethics made clear over a course of, sort of 
tweets, among other things, but also press releases and discussions, the practice has been, for since the office was created in 1978, for presidents uh, before assuming office or shortly thereafter to divest themselves substantially of their holdings and put others in a truly blind trust and where the presidents have tangible assets where blind trust wouldn't be a solution, to divest themselves of those assets. Uh, President Trump has declined to do this. He has said correctly that the conflict of interest law to which I just referred does not apply to the president. He has said incorrectly, in my view, that the president cannot have a conflict of interest. Right? Those are, that's, this, you know, that's, those are two very different things. Um, the point that the head of the Office of Government Ethics has made is that for a variety of practical reasons, the statutes, for better or worse, probably for better, that's my editorializing, not his, uh, don't apply to the president, but presidents have made a practice of complying to the extent possible. Yeah, if, I, um, if I could jump in yes. there, the, the Onion, of course, has captured this better than anybody else. There's a, a mock po uh, op-ed up on the Onion written by quote unquote Jimmy Carter under. Uh, you made me under, give up my peanut farm. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah you, you people made me sell my peanut farm. Uh, is, is, the, is the headline. So, uh, with that. So, so, um, so yeah, this is. Uh, so look, I'm not saying anything especially original uh, when I say this is a very substantial concern. It's a very substantial concern, uh, given the Trump Organization's foreign and domestic business interests. Having adult children, you know, managing the business—that's not a solution. I mean, that—that's—that's—that's that's, that's a barely a fig leaf. To call it a fig leaf would would be charitable. Um, and an insult to fig leaves. I mean, yeah, possibly. <laughs> uh, so, look, I mean, what do we make of this? So, it's let me say something. Sort of, a couple things at a higher level of generality. So, one of the issues here that I think people are grappling with, not only in the anti-corruption context, but in many contexts, is the fact that our system has traditionally run not only on hard rules coming from the Constitution, statute, or regulations, but a whole series of informal norms and understandings that were enforced through some combination of commitment to, intrinsic commitment to the norm, uh, reciprocity, right, because parties alternate in power, the um, sort of a st standard tit-for-tat kind of story, or the belief that there would be substantial political costs for violating the norm. So the Trump administration, on a m number of different dimensions, has transgressed what we thought would be these norms. On that third point, does not as of yet seem to have paid substantial political costs for doing so, which is a concern not just for what you think about the Trump administration, but when everyone kind of learns, huh, it turns out that you don't have to release your tax returns, and nothing happens, right? The sky doesn't fall. Yeah. You can do this, that, and the other thing, and, and, and it's fine. That's a concern. It may be that because he's not really a Republican, or hasn't been traditionally, that, that usually that long-term interest in the party over time is not the same kind of constraint on him, that it might be uh, even to a more conventional Republican or Democrat who might chafe at the constraint of the norm, but feel like, under pressure, either internally from the party, not to throw the whole system into chaos, because again, the system runs on these norms and understandings. And in terms of the first point, intrinsic commitment to the norm doesn't seem especially strong. So that's a big, I mean, that's a big problem. The other thing about this, you know, it's worrisome to me, putting aside the specifics of the, whether the, the particular plan is, is, is uh, effective or not, you know, we've seen this pattern before. And what we've seen so far bears a striking resemblance to a pattern that we've seen not in this country, at least not in my lifetime, uh, but in lots and lots of other countries. So I'm reminded of the Kirchners in Argentina, uh, or the Shinawatras in uh, Thailand, 
or Jacob Zuma in South Africa, or uh, any number of other examples I could give where what you see is a candidate who runs in a populist platform. I am your voice. I'm taking on those elites, those corrupt or out-of-touch elites, but who seem to run the office principally for the material financial benefit of the leader, the leader's family, and the leader's cronies. So, look, is it premature to, to accuse Donald Trump of being a kleptocrat? Yeah, maybe. Like, it's still very, we're about less than two weeks into the administration. We don't really know. But I think for people who study corruption and study it globally, not just domestically, there are eerie resonances. And I'm not sure, again, these people, whatever else you think of Trump, he's very politically shrewd. Whatever you th else you think of Thaksin Shinawatra, he's very politically shrewd, right? Same thing to say about a lot of these people. They seem to be able to sell a populist message that resonates with people who think they've been disrespected, even humiliated, right, by traditional elites, and as a result are willing to cut those people quite a lot of slack. Right, don't really care that much if this guy's getting rich. He may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. Right? Is that is that there's that kind of, the Philippines is another country where you see this really clearly. Right there, it was a the the Trump equivalent was a former action movie star who very much part this is Estrada, right? Who very much uh, was able to tap into this sense of those wealthy elites, the middle and upper classes in places like Manila. They disrespect you. They don't understand you. I'm your voice, I'm fighting for you, I'm a man of the people, and it worked. I mean, eventually, uh, the corruption scandals in his administration, led actually by uh, an intrepid investigative journalist based at Columbia University, uh, now based at Columbia University, she moved here to, to run your, got your Center for Investigative Journalism, uh, brought him down. But it's a pattern that we've seen before. So yes, for the, the, the one person, the few people out there who might think I'm going overboard and being anti-Trump, if you want to come back at me and say, look, we're less than two weeks into the administration. He hasn't actually, as far as we can tell, violated any hard laws. A lot of this is speculation about stuff that might happen. I will say, okay, you got a point, right? A lot of this is projecting into the future, but the projection is informed partly not just by what I or others might think of Trump's policy agenda, but by a particular pattern that we've seen play out in many different countries. And you know, to borrow a phrase that was much you know, widespread currency in the 1940s, right? The idea that it can't happen here, mm. I think, is a little bit naive. It can happen here. What's to stop it from happening here? And so we've got to be on guard. And there's another question which we may or not get into about how people who care about anti-corruption specifically should respond to that set of challenges. Well, well let, let's go there. And on the blog that Jen referenced earlier, uh, by the way, you should feel free to do a commercial, give the URL for it, um, which I should know, but I don't. Uh, but you had a post up, I think, just yesterday. Um, does the anti-corruption yeah. community engage or fight? And can you unpack that one for us a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So the the, the advertisement is globalanticorruptionblog.com. <laughs> right? One word, no hyphen. Um, and yeah, so I, I, had a, I had a post that I did yesterday that I tried to type up things that I'd been thinking about or wondering about or, or talking about with friends and colleagues who work on this for a while, which really does have to do with what posture the U.S. anti-corruption community, which is defined loosely as the collection of people who professionally are engaged in anti-corruption one way or the other, whether they're academics or advocates or activists or journalists or what have you. And I framed the strategic choice in a way that I recognize is too simple, over, an oversimplification. 
Uh, but I nonetheless think it's sort of heuristically useful for thinking about the issue. issue. And it was the question was engage or confront. And my main co-blogger, a guy who used to work for Republican Senator Richard Lugar and then worked for the World Bank for many years and now is an independent consultant, had taken more of an engagement kind of position. And in another meeting that I was fortunate to attend with some a bipartisan collection of anti-corruption activists and others, there was a sense that there might be it might be wise to find ways to engage with the administration anti-corruption. And that argument goes something like this. The argument goes, look, like it or not, Trump's the president. He's probably going to be president for at least the next four years. There is a set of issues that are really important to the anti-corruption community where it might be possible to make some progress. It might be especially possible to make some progress because many people coming into the new administration don't have a lot of background in these issues, don't have a lot of experience, and might be open to engagement and persuasion. So, yeah, maybe the incoming head of the fraud section or SEC chair has like a vaguely not so great uh, impression of the SCPA and think it disadvantages U.S. corporations. There might be opportunities for groups and individuals that they can get at a seat at the table. It sounds condescending to educate them, but, but talk to them, lobby them, persuade them, explain the long-standing bipartisan support for this law, the ways in which it helps the business community, the way it helps the U.S. reputation abroad, do all that. There might be ways to connect parts of the anti-corruption agenda to things that the Trump administration has uh, placed a lot of emphasis on. So corruption in uh, border and customs enforcement may contribute to illegal immigration. On the national security front, uh, and the anti-money laundering rules that were put into effect by the Patriot Act, among other statutes, uh, are really important for fighting terrorism. And to the extent that the financial community might now be lobbying for a rollback a lot of, the, of a lot of the financial transparency rules, if the anti-corruption community is skillful and finds the right people to talk to, especially in the national security apparatus, they might be able to at least play defense and maybe even make some progress if they can package or sell some of these issues is really important. And then again, coming back to the, the first subject of our conversation, yeah, there's the drain the swamp rhetoric, and yeah, maybe people like me uh, think that on, on Trump's part that was disingenuous, but there might be a lot of people coming to the administration who really believe that or believe that Trump believes it, and if you can reach those people and explain, look, we disagree on a lot of stuff, but anti-corruption has traditionally been a bipartisan issue, and it's one that should actually appeal to the Trump administration, at least in some ways, then you might be able to get better policy or at least avoid some of the kinds of policy reversals that I was just describing. And then the engagement advocates continue. You're not going to get there. You're not going to get the figurative or literal seat at the table if you're jumping up and down screaming, you guys are all liars and crooks and thieves and we hate you and the whole administration uh, is a kleptocracy. Right? If that's the posture that you take, your opportunities to engage and therefore influence policy are going to be diminished. So I'm trying to put the engagement position in its best possible light because my instincts are actually different. So Rick and I, we have a friendship going back to 20 years when he hired me as a graduate student to do some RA work for him. <laughs> and so I'd like to be able to preserve in our political culture to be able to like engage vigorously and debate with people with whom we disagree. I feel like that's a skill that is also eroding in our... So, 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 uh, so I wanted to, to give Rick's uh, uh, position, uh, put it in its best possible light, but the conf confrontation advocates, the people who say that the anti-corruption community should really be pounding on uh, just how much of a concern this is, just how much this really does look like the Kirchners or Estrada or Putin or whatever, um, need to do that. And they need to be loud about it, and they can't be trying to you know, get themselves a seat at the table by soft peddling just how much of a concern this is. And maybe the way to put the argument for this is the engagement advocates are reasonably worried about the next four years. 
But I'm not so much worried about, I'm worried about the next four years, I'm more worried about the next 40 years. Right? I'm worried about the system of informal norms, and what is done and what isn't done, and what is expected or is not expected of our political leaders. And the only way to enforce these informal norms, if they're not internalized, is for people to raise holy hell about them, and to keep the issues front and center and not let up, and to be very confrontational about it. Um, I, confrontation advocates might also just be skeptical about how much resonance anti-corruption advocacy is, is really going to have in this administration. Right? Again, coming back to my three hypotheses for what role corruption played, uh, if you think it's really a stand-in for something else, if you think mm -hmm. they don't really care about it when it comes right down to it, then you don't want to sacrifice uh, your ability to advocate effectively in the court of public opinion because you think maybe you'll be able to move the needle a little bit with some junior person in the Justice Department. Um, so, you know, I think that's, that's the case for taking a more confrontational posture um, and finding ways, you know, political, legal others to aggressively challenge the administration when it's, when it's possible to do so. I said that it's an oversimplification, and it is, right? It's not like any individual or group has to choose one strategy or the other. Different groups can pursue different strategies, right? Oftentimes we see a kind of good cop, bad cop, some organizations are more sort of they're the good cop and they'll engage and they'll we'll work with you and you know you care about this issue too and others are the ones who are screaming bloody murder and condemning and sometimes they can complement each other. Individuals don't, have, don't even have to make such a stark choice, right? You can engage sometimes, confront other times, do a mix. So it's, I recognize that it's a, a, in some ways a gross oversimplification, but just based on having sat around a bunch of conference tables and had hallway conversations and so forth with people in what I get on the find loose is the anti-corruption community, I do think this is a challenge that they're thinking about and a, and a kind of basic strategic choice that it's better to think about explicitly uh, than to just kind of muddle through. Okay, so uh, just before we open it up for questions, um, let's just say hypothetically that you were oh, a law student and you were feeling maybe a little confrontational. Um, what exactly would you do tomorrow to act on that? So, you know, we're already seeing, not just on this issue, or not even particularly on this issue, but a range of issues, people, not necessarily in the capacity of law students or law professors or lawyers, but just in the capacity of citizens, get involved and get engaged, right? Because I've seen a lot more people, including me, become much more politically active and active in various forms of civic engagement. The protests are obviously the most high profile, but there are a bunch of other ways as well uh, to engage with these issues. Part of it is, if you care about these issues, staying regularly informed about what's going on. Um, you can attend more CAPI events and plug into that uh, network. Uh, I want to give the plug because you guys are great. Actually, um, you know, I, I gather CAPI might be doing some activities here with students in their capacity as law students doing things like research, writing up white papers and so forth. I'm trying to do something similar with some of my Harvard students. Uh, because so much is happening so quickly, even just understanding, even just mapping all the laws, regulations, and so forth, and how they maybe apply or how they maybe don't apply, is something where I think law students can make a difference. Um, again, another thing I'm working on with my Harvard students is to try to think creatively about what could happen at the federal level, the state level, internationally, uh, that might be some way to push back against some of this. It's very hard at the federal level politically right now, uh, given that Republicans control both chambers of Congress, and even though it seems many Republicans are uncomfortable with certain aspects of the administration, including maybe especially some of the conflicts interests. I think most Republicans right now, especially in the House, are much more worried about a primary challenge from the right than they are about anything else. So, but you know, 
it, it's unfortunately we've got a lot of time to worry about these issues. Yeah. Uh, and that and study hard in law school and hone your skills as lawyers. And I'm actually, I'm completely serious. I mean, the, the day after the election, when I taught my first year class, it was obviously a very difficult day to teach. the The political demographics of Harvard Law School are not that different from in this room. And I think even my very outspoken conservative students were not um, Trump fans. Uh, but one of the things I told them then, and then I'll, I'll say to you guys now, now more, more than ever, it's really important to hone your, your lawyering skills. Right? And we've, again, we've already seen in another context, the immigration context, how much of a difference uh, lawyers can make. Several of my law school classmates, and they're on my Facebook feed, and they're at airports, and they're consulting with people. And then there's a lot of other stuff that's going on. Uh, again, it's not quite that high profile or confrontational. Uh, so study hard. Okay. Work with Kathy, study hard for your classes, uh, and then you know you got you'll then you'll graduate into this world and find other ways. There, there's a million different ways. People Great, thank you. So we do have a few minutes, and I do want to be sure we we uh, throw it open for a, a question or two. Um, have a hand over there. Yeah. So uh, going back to your hypothesis number three, mm -hmm. which uh, I think is evidenced by the prosecution of the Hillary email scandal, but then the ignoring of the Trump University settlement, uh, it's not really, you know, you're saying it's not really about corruption at all. How much do you think the election was really about a debate on globalization, and how much do you think that will come into play moving forward? Yeah, so I'm going to give my I don't know answer again, uh, which might seem like a cop-out, but I actually think it's really important for those of us who don't know to remind our audiences regularly that we don't know because of these tendencies that I mentioned before for people to, you know, the election in some ways it's like the ink blot. You can look at it and see, you know, whatever, you're, whatever you want to see or whatever you're predisposed to see. Uh, so I don't know, so, and I've heard from my political scientists friends conflicting pieces of evidence on this. So in the primaries, right, in the Republican primary, which might be our best evidence of what the profile of hardcore Trump supporters as opposed to general Republicans looked like, I gather there was not very much correlation at all between propensity to support Trump in the primary and living in an area that had a lot of immigrants or living in an area that had been especially affected by trade, globalization, etc. Uh, the predictors, the best predictors, uh, were attitudes on race and authoritarian personality tendency. Right? Now, um, like in the general election, it's much harder to tell because one of the features of the American political system right now, in significant contrast to 25 years ago, is very strong partisanship right? on, on both sides. Uh, but you just look at the graphs of like how frequently people will vote for a party other than the one that they typically identify with, and it just 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 plummets. Um, one astute analysis I read somewhere, and I, I forget where I, I credit the author, talked about what we're really facing is the combination of very strong partisanship and very weak parties, which is what creates the opening for someone like Trump. Because if you had a stronger party system, I mean, the Republican Party, not just because they thought he was going to lose, but also because he revolted a lot of mainstream Republicans, would never have made it through uh, the primary system if the selection uh, mechanism gave much more power to the party establishment. For better or worse, it doesn't and creates the space for insurgent candidates. But once you get to the general election, everybody closes ranks, almost everybody, overwhelming majorities. Um, so, and then if you look, apparently if you look at the data from the general election, there does seem to be some suggestive evidence that globalization or what have you might have played a role. Again, if you, you come back to the 
the football stadium's worth of people that swung the election, there does seem to be some evidence that a lot of those people were in places that were, uh, you know, the, the people call it the Rust Belt, but places where manufacturing jobs had declined significantly and there was a lot of that sort of anxiety. Again, one of the things we don't really know is how much of this was people who would otherwise have been inclined to vote for Clinton switched their vote to Trump. A lot of people looked at county-level data and said, wow, there are a whole bunch of Obama Democrats who voted for Trump and tried to draw a lot of inferences from this. That's not necessarily the right inference to draw because we have county-level data, but we don't have the level of individual voters' data. So what we might have seen is that a lot of people in those crucial precincts uh, stayed home, right, or left the ballot blank if they were inclined to vote Democrat for a variety of reasons. They were frustrated. They, didn't, they, they perceived Hillary as a corrupt or otherwise undesirable candidate, and that Trump actually pulled off what a lot of pundits and people like me were being pretty dismissive about before the election, which is he's going to turn out a lot of people who otherwise don't vote at all. So we don't really know right now whether anxieties about globalization actually flipped people, whether they had an effect on turnout rates among people who already have propensities to vote one way or the other, or whether it didn't make any difference at all. That's, again, I'm kind of parroting what I've read from the political science crowd. I haven't really researched that issue very much myself. But it's, it seems paradoxical, right? It seems like concerns about globalization, trade, and so forth, and immigration, if you view it as an economic issue, doesn't really explain strong support for Trump. Immigration does only insofar as it's a xenophobia issue. But in the general election, there actually does seem to be some evidence that it maybe didn't move a lot of votes, but might have moved enough votes to swing the election. So I don't know what to do about that. Yeah, so, so part two of this is next week, and one of the major topics that we're going to be talking about with Professor Jay Wexler is the Emoluments Clause. So if you come then, you'll hear a fulsome discussion of that. So, so yes, the, I'm glad you guys did the preview for next week. I was actually told not to talk too much about the Emoluments Clause because it's coming. But, so, this is another place where, you know, three weeks ago most people never heard of the Foreign Emoluments Clause, and now you have this whole, like, team of people holding themselves as experts on the Emoluments Clause and stroking their chins and holding <laughs> forth. And so I'm now going to be one of those people. But uh, here's my take on the, on the Citizens for Responsibility Ethics in Washington crew, the lawsuit. No, I think it's going to be dismissed on jurisdictional grounds. I think the theory of standing is extraordinarily weak. Uh, the theory of standing, I don't know how many of you have already covered standing in your various classes, but you need to show a concrete and particular injury. The theory of standing is that Crew is an organization that cares about corruption has had to divert resources to th thinking and talking and advocating in the media about Trump's emoluments clause violation. The craziest piece of their standing theory, to my mind, is one of the forms of research, resource diversion that they claim is a basis for standing, is that we had to use resources to research this lawsuit and file this brief, which I think is going to get laughed out of court. That means any organization can file a brief and say, we suffered an injury because we had to file this brief. So I think it's going to get booted up. That consent, there's a not universal consensus. I think Professor Michael Dorff is the only kind of law professor who I know and respect who's come out on the opposite side and said, at least in the Second Circuit, where a crew was careful to file, the precedent interpreting this old Supreme Court case from 1982 might be enough to get them in. But if it gets higher than that, it's going to get tossed to standing grounds. That was a conversation between Professor Matthew Stevenson and attorney Jeremy Fagelson, recorded on February 1st, 2017. The event was co-sponsored by the Center for the Advancement of Public Integrity at Columbia Law School and our event sponsor, Debevoise and Plimpton. Stay tuned to Integrity File for part two of this conversation with Professor Jay Wexler of Boston University Law. For more events and publications like this one, 
Follow the Center for the Advancement of Public Integrity on Facebook and Twitter. And for more information, visit our website.